Dennis Prager here. If you have a business or real estate dispute, I strongly recommend that you call Barack Lurie. Barack, you recently handled a case where one brother was suing his two brothers, your clients. What happened? Well, Dennis, the two brothers struggled but succeeded to build three restaurants. But when the third brother returned from being out of the country for 20 years, he sued to get one-third of their business. He claimed an oral deal between them because he had once worked as a cook for them. So what did you do? Well, during trial, we got him to acknowledge certain key dates and to his complete lack of documentation. So when his side rested, we asked the court for what's called a directed verdict, a motion that gets rid of a case after fatal facts come out during trial. And the court agreed, shooting down all but one of the brothers' causes of action. And we settled that one for a very small amount and excused the jury. And justice was done. My friends, you know that I trust Barack Lurie with my own business and other legalities. So to make sure a deal is done right, call him for your own legal issues. At 866-575-8111, that's 866-575-8111. Fighting for what's right, Barack Lurie at Lurie and Park, 866-575-8111. So I'm doing my show on the Sunday outing for uh, my radio show on KRLA, 870 AM. And uh, it strikes me that talking about Iran a lot, that there are so many issues that are coming up, so many questions that naturally come up or should be coming up, but you don't really hear very much on the news media cycles. Just certain facts are coming out that beg certain questions. Here, here are some that, that are just coming racing to mind right away. Let me, let me set up the, the foundation a little bit first. First of all, as you know, the sanctions is what brought the Iranians to the table, to the negotiating table. Never mind that negotiations with d dictatorships doesn't work, but they, they've come to the table, okay? So, and, and that's the reason why they came. And Obama recognizes that, and he says sanctions have, have worked to br bring them on the table. And yet, at the same time, he says, we have to uh, do this, uh, we can't use sanctions as a you know, further uh, way to deal with the Iranians because uh, sanctions haven't worked. Well, <laughs> have they worked or have they not worked? Apparently they have worked when you say that they're coming to the negotiating table, but they're not working when you say, you expect that to use that as, a, as an actual tool to get what you want done. Right? I mean, it's, it was, what a bizarre thing. So that's, that's question number one. Question number two is, um, we have, well, why didn't you involve Israel in this? I mean, I'm not talking about Israel should have been at the table because the Iranians, you know, they're crazy and they hate Israel and they won't recognize Israel as a nation. But why didn't you involve Israel in terms of the pre-negotiations and say, okay, Bibi, Here's what we, we, we are planning. What do you think about that? Okay. And Bibi would say, well, here's the problem, Mr. President. You know, uh, sanctions are probably more appropriate than trying to work out a deal with them, expecting them to comply because they won't comply. But here, here are our reservations. Okay. But there was no such communication. Why not? Why? Don't you think that, that Israel would be the most appropriate partner to talk to? to see what they think about this. They've dealt with the hostile Arab world and the Muslim world for that matter. Uh, they have a lot of experience in this department. And secondly, they're the first to be fried, as it were, from an, any nuclear power point of view. 
Okay. Never mind that we'll be equally fried eventually five minutes later, but we'll be fried first. Okay. Uh, Israel will be fried first. Little Satan, right? So that's a big question. Why didn't they involve Israel? It's not that hard either, right? I mean, you, you know, Obama, Obama could have said is, look, Israel, we want your involvement in terms of how to negotiate this thing um, and how to make things as uh, minimally, um, minimal friction as possible. We'd like you to give us ideas. Here's our approach, and what's your approach? Okay, that's, that's all they need to say. And just keep them in the loop. But instead, they completely kept them out of the loop. And the question is, why? Okay. I think we have answers for why, but that's another story. All right, so the second question becomes this thing about the two- to three-month breakout period. So we're talking now, for reference purposes, we're talking in uh, early April of 2015, which would mean that it would be, what, July? Uh, let's see, May, June, July, yeah. So early July, or uh, June, July, June or July uh, of 2015, that the Iranians would have the capacity to have a full-on breakout, meaning that they would have the bomb. I was going to say, just in time for July 4th, they could detonate a nuclear weapon over an American city upon a great show. All right. Well, no, cer- but you, but cer- you know what I mean. Yes. I, do, I, I do know. But, but, yeah. but, okay, so two to three month breakout. So it begs the question. The question is very simple. If you're Iran and you're at the negotiating table and you want to get the best deal for your country— meaning that you want to be able to enrich as much uranium and, and create as many nuclear bombs as you want to and, and have the Americans still release the sanctions and thereby improve your economy and so on. You, you want the best for your country as possible, right? For your dictatorship, as it were. Then why not wait it out? I mean, if you truly have a two- to three-month timetable for your breakout, I mean, you've, you've waited years up to now, why not just do the two to three months? And then you have your bomb, and then the negotiating changes, doesn't it? It completely changes. Yeah, to release the sanctions or we kill you. Yeah, that's what it is. And, and suddenly you become North Korea. You know, North Korea has negotiations with us also, but the negotiations basically say, how much money is it this time, <laughs> King Jong-un? How much, how much money do you want now? That's what the negotiations are. Yeah, and just so you know, they actually have that the, that two to three month uh, breakout period built into the negotiations. Because remember what they signed the other day, or actually didn't sign because there's no paperwork. <laughs> you know, it's not on paper. Is a a group preliminary agreement that is finalized in June, two months away. Two to three months away in the breakout period. Yeah, that's when we finalize it and release the sanctions. So the second they have the bomb, they can say, "Oh, we've stopped developing the bomb." And release the sanctions. Right. Giving us the money. Well, for sure. But, but I would think it's even easier for them. And simply say, listen, we have the bomb now. Too late. So sad. You know, what is uh, too sad, so bad. Or so, too bad, so sad. Right? Yeah. That's the expression. You know, we don't really feel like negotiating. This happened to, to me in litigation once when I was a second-year attorney. And there are many things that there, there are deadlines by which to do certain things. And one of the deadlines is to obtain an expert witness. In some cases, if you don't have an expert witness, you're not going to win the case. Okay? You're just, you just can't. You with me so far, Ari? I'm with you. And no expert witness, no win. Right. 
Okay, I mean, certain, certain cases cry out for an expert. It, it doesn't have to be a, a doctor expert, but it could be an expert as to the reasonableness of a certain kind of construction of a, of a building, for example, or whether or not this place was, in fact, fire retardant, or you know whether uh, it, it, uh, an accountant performed his services adequately. You need experts for many different kinds of things. Anyway, in this one case, it was a small case. The total amount in, in dispute was uh, $50,000 back in 1991. And again, I'm a second-year attorney. And we're, we're trying to settle the case, and they, they've got no case. From a substance point of view, no case. And we're trying to negotiate, negotiate, and we're willing to pay them $1,500. No, they want $2,250. And for the principle of it, we've gone back and forth, back and forth. And finally, I call up and I say, well, we're willing to go to $2,000. I mean, it, it's embarrassing to say how little it was involved, but I was, a, I was a young attorney, and they wanted me to get the practice. And we were going back and forth, a settlement. And on the other line, when I said that $2,000 offer, well, we've kind of changed our positioning a little bit on this. We want a little bit more. And I said, well, why? Because we just want a little bit more. How much more, I said. Well, we're thinking of the tune of $50,000. I said, $50,000, that's everything. That's what, that's what the entire gamut of what you would possibly want is. He goes, yeah, we want $50,000. I said, well, how can that be? I mean, we were talking about all this time. He goes, well, you haven't designated an expert in time. So we want $50,000 because you're going to lose without an expert. And he was right. And we settled for $40,000 at the end of the day. Now, thank goodness it wasn't millions and millions of dollars. But, and that was my second year of practice. And I just had assumed incorrectly. And luckily, you had a third year of practice because right. a lot <laughs> of lawyers are now managing yeah. fast food. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, this is many years ago. But it was a, a valuable lesson on a small, smaller case. But I learned that things can change in litigation. Your case, anything in life can change as soon as the other side has some rights to, um, as, soon as, as soon as they understand they have some rights uh, that, that now completely immunize them from any liability or, or otherwise, that's when they exercise it. I don't have to listen to you now, Mr. Smith. Um, you're, your complaint against us, so let's say, uh, for, for millions of dollars, I don't have to entertain it whatsoever because it went beyond the statute of limitations, Mr. Smith. Therefore, I don't have to listen to you anymore. We're done. But, but, but you owe me the money, he'll say. You, you, I provided you all these services. And I can say on behalf of my client, yeah, but you were one day late in filing your complaint. The statute is four years. And it's four years and a day that you filed your complaint. I don't have to listen to you at all. I don't have to respond to you. In fact, we're going to move for summary judgment. We're going to demur to your complaint, which means that you can just kick out the complaint instantly. And the judge will sustain that demur, which means that you're done. Well, how about if you give me uh, half of the amount of money? And I say, uh, how about if we give you no money? How's that for a settlement amount? And that's the problem that Mr. Smith will have. Okay, same thing when it comes to chess. 
and I, my, my best analogy always is chess. Ari, you and I have played chess before, and I'll just ask you the question. Let's imagine a game where both sides have lost their queen previously. And you know that you can move your pawn all the way down to the other end of the board. What happens when the pawn reaches the other end of the board? She magically goes from street urchin to queen. That's right. The pawn now becomes a queen. Would you say that's a game changer? Yeah. It is a game changer. Oh, yeah. That's exactly right. When, it, when a pawn become, goes to the other end of the board and becomes a queen, the game completely changes. In fact, you may very well have to resign the other side, the one who doesn't have the queen, depending on the circumstances. The game is completely different. And that's the way it is with the bomb. When a country that we don't like gets the bomb, it changes the game. North Korea got the bomb, and it changed the game. We can't attack North Korea the way we would like to isolate them and destroy them because they have the bomb. And, how and so did, what we do is... how did they get the we bomb? We bribe them. Okay. Yeah, well, that, I, I don't want to go there. I think it's Illustrum because okay. the way they got the bomb is the same way Iran's getting the bomb. Yes, absolutely. that's true. That's the point. Yeah, they, they, they got the, the, the bomb by fooling us and everything else. Promising inspections, promising peaceful uses. Yes, that's true. Exact same thing. Yes, but you can never accuse a liberal of thinking these things through. It's, it's so dangerous. It's so, it's, so, it's so palpably clear of the, the famous adage that if those who don't learn from history are condemned to repeat it, right? Well, we'll repeat this. It's, it's clear that Iran is going to get the bomb. It's but unlike the situation in, uh, in North Korea, it, it won't lead to an arms race. It, it did not lead to an arms race in North Korea because China already has the bomb. Japan may or may not have the bomb, probably does. And, um, and South Korea probably has its own bomb, too. Okay, it's already there. It's already built. But the problem is if Iran gets the bomb, it will, and in fact, it probably already has started an arms race in the Middle East of all places. You know, these places, they, you know, these people who are really crazy. So that's the problem for them. Okay, so it's a game changer. That's what we're talking about. And there's so many other things in, in life that change the game on you. So we're gonna, Iran's going to get the bomb, and it's going to turn around and say, listen, just like that, that opposing counsel told me, I don't know if I want to negotiate anymore. I don't feel like it. How about if I, if I don't allow your inspections? How about that for now? And then we'll say, but I don't understand. We uh, and the five plus one, uh, you know, we just we we were negotiating a good faith for years. Uh, we're almost we're almost done here. Okay? I mean, uh, what was what, what what happened? Yeah, Hans Blix is on his way. What's the problem? Well, you see, we already have the bomb. So, here's what I'd like from you, Mr. Obama. What do you want from us? Money. Having release those sanctions right now. And in addition, we want some money. Yeah. You know, like North Korea. You know, just view us as North Korea, Middle East. <laughs> right? We're the satellite office now. We're the same. And now you have to deal with us the same way. And we expect no less. Yeah, here's the new deal. You release all the sanctions, give us $1 trillion worth of gold, or we will detonate that bomb that's sitting off Israel's coast in the next 30 minutes. Are there any questions? 
Yeah. Oh, and by the way, we have one in New York uh, Harbor, too. Right. It's not that hard for them to make that. And uh, for Obama to call that bluff and say, well, we're going to nuke you right now, okay, we can press the button just as fast. In fact, probably faster, because our bombs just need to go to Israel. And we don't, frankly, care if uh, those poor Palestinians in the West Bank die in the process also and Jordan, for that matter, and most of Saudi Arabia, because, you know, we really don't like them anyway. So that's, what, that's what's going to happen. Just like that opposing counsel kind of woke me up with that. I, it was really quite a shock because when he did the that. The issue was not the checkmate, but how fast it happened. Yeah. There's a, a I think uh, Rush Limbaugh said this morning, he said, tipping points happen before you ever know they happen. It's always faster. It's always faster. Yeah. Just like our predictions we, we make predictions, sometimes bold predictions, and then they end, end up happening faster than we thought they would. Okay, so here's another question. You know, it, it just befuddled me during the Bush administration, and then Obama comes into the scene, and he promises to deal with Iran. It's been now six and a half years. Why now? Why, why hasn't it occurred so much Earlier, were they not afraid? No more elections, that's why. But, but, but wait, 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 wait. I don't know if I agree with that. Why not come with a piece of paper? Because, you know, he's big on pieces of paper, right? Why not, in, in the, before the election of 2012 or 2010, for that matter, say, you know what, I see this as an urgent matter. I'm not going to negotiate a, a treaty with Iran before they even get anywhere close to getting a bomb, not two to three months breakout, but more like four to five years breakout. And I'm going to force the situation, and I'm going to get a, a piece of paper where they, they agree to forced inspections and all the good things that now he wants to claim. I have an even bigger question in scope, which is this. For people who claim to be on the side of the Iranian people and the nation of Iran, and there's a lot to love about the nation of Iran. Very interesting place, a lot of wealth culturally and otherwise there. Right. Why would anyone in their right mind who cares about Iran do anything to help the government that's been in power there since 1979 stay in power a day longer if you really care about the Iranian people or even if you care about people who are government officials in the Iranian government? Being in, uh, part of a dictatorial government structure is a state of total paranoia day in, day out, knowing that you can be killed or overthrown any day. Why would you want to help that system stay in place? Right. Why not help even peacefully transition it the way they peacefully transitioned South Africa's apartheid system into a democratic system? Oh, don't even, don't even get me started with the, the, the comparisons of the sanctions in South Africa versus the comparisons of the versus Iran. I mean, they say sanctions don't work, but they worked very well against South Africa. Brilliantly. So, and, and presumably Obama, and in fact, I know Obama said that sanctions were a, a fantastic force to, to change the regime in South Africa, and, and he was right. But, but they don't work against the Iranian regime? I don't get that. What makes but them it, so special? It, yeah, exactly. What is it? Is it, it, it does it not work against Persians? Does it, but it does work against a, a white majority rule? What, what, what's, what, what gives here? So it's a good question what you asked, because it kind of follow, here's a follow-up question to that. Why would, they, why would the Obama administration actually negotiate with this dictatorial regime when they could be angling to support the opposition to the regime. I think that's what you're saying. Right. And 
they had that opportunity in 2009 uh, when the um, students and, and the, the younger generation actually rose up, and there's a Twitter revolution, right? And they were talking about all these things, and it was a very exciting time, and we thought that things would actually happen. But Obama seemed to not lift a finger, didn't, didn't mention a single thing. He didn't encourage the revolution of any sort. It's as if he was concerned that the Iranian revolution, sorry, that the, that the, that the mullahs would not remain in power. That's what it seemed. And I'm exactly. Not, I'm not saying that he's doing that, but it's, but he, he might as well have done yeah, it. Yeah, that's that. where we differ in many of these episodes, and that's fine. I'll still love you. I'm, I'm, but, my point, no, yeah. I'm, I'm with you. I understand what you're saying. My point, Ari, is he might as well have, have done it. It, it. Like I said, it... It doesn't matter whether it was deliberate or accidental. It doesn't matter. Yeah. It's it's, it's uh, his, his effort to kind of withdraw from the whole situation. He contributed... To this rise, uh, this continuance of this evil, it's very, very similar to the notion of all it takes for evil to survive is for good men to do nothing. Now, putting aside whether or not he's a good man, uh, he's he, he's the president of a very good country, and by saying nothing, he is uh, allowing evil to, to flourish. And he was so I, I fault him just as much as if he had done it, decided to do it deliberately. Right, and whether he was a good man or not, Obama was in a position, being the most powerful man in the world, to do good in this case. That's right. And this regime has only become more oppressive, more virulent, more torturous of its people. How does Valerie Jarrett, who claims to be an Iranian, I have no reason not to believe her, have no affection for the Iranian people, not to care about their slaughter and torment? I, I care about the Iranian people uh, in I, I, this regard. I want the regime not to be a belligerent actor on the world stage to threaten us with uh, to die in a pillar of fire. And I, because I care about people like all conservatives do, I want the people of Iran living free, uh, self-determining their own fate. Well, of course. Of course. We, we want this very well. But, but my point is I care more about them than she does. Yeah, okay, but, but we're not... We're not Let's, let's focus on the questions that this situation is begging, okay? That's, that's really where I want to go. Um, because your, your question, your point raised that question of, well, why is he only dealing with the dictatorship when he could be dealing with the opposition? In other words, why, why hasn't ever been introduced into the negotiating equation? Look, guys... My my, my, my my mullah friends here, not, I'm using friends in a loose term, not, I'm not saying that he's actually friendly with the mullahs, because I, I don't want to go down the road of, of exaggerating. Let's say, he, he says, look guys, the fact is that we can go ahead and stir up the opposition as much as we want. You guys are hanging on a thread here. You, ha you do have to look over your shoulders all the time, and you know what, we'll give you the what for in terms of making sure that you look over your shoulder for many years to come. By giving the opposition the weapons or the means of communications right. that they need to overthrow you. Because we can do that. You didn't like what happened in 2009? Oh, we'll, we'll make that happen again, and we'll make it happen in full force. That, that is not happening in the negotiations. Yes. Okay? That would be nice if it did. All right, so that's, that's a question that, that is begged, as they say. Here's another question. Why is it that nowhere in the talks, and I know this is not happening, is there any discussion about Iran forgoing its hostile language toward Israel, the very existence of Israel, not even recognizes its existence? And put that aside, why is there no language or discussion in the negotiations where they agree to stop supporting terrorism, including Hezbollah 
and what's happening in Yemen and otherwise. Why? Or why isn't there any uh, language in the negotiation telling them to stop calling for the death to our nation that's right. negotiation, negotiating in good faith with them across the table? Right. Right. This is, this is not the kind of stuff they were talking about. We, we joked about this in the previous podcast. You know, if, if I had the equivalent situation in, in a promissory note dispute in a settlement conference, let's say, and we're trying to work out a deal, trying to be, everyone's trying to be nice to each other, and uh, the one says, you know, it's, let's say it's 500000 that's owed. You know what? We'll take $450,000, and uh, we won't charge interest, and, you know, you can make it over payable over one year. How do you like that? And the other side says, you know, F you, death to you, <laughs> right? That's, that's not the way you negotiate. You don't say it at the same time that you negotiate. You say, okay, I guess we're going to have to see you in court. That's right. I and, guess and they, we'll have to see you on the battlefield. And here's what they also never say. They don't say, um, I'll give you $400,000 and death to you, <laughs> right? No, it doesn't work that way. It's, it's just death to you. That's it. So the, the fact that they're having so many problems, you know, getting these nuanced discussions going on, that, that the spot inspections and everything else. Okay. Uh, they just, the fact that they're not doing anything else with Iran to force them to stop their support of terrorism. So in other words, as long as they don't develop an actual nuclear bomb, they can do whatever they want terrorism-wise. So they can do indirectly what they can't do directly. Just don't use a bomb. Use whatever else you want. Perhaps chemical weapons, right? Perhaps biological weapons, right? I, I wonder if they, uh, they're preventing Iran from doing that, too. That's another question, right? I don't think that that's the question. So I, I'm, I'm concerned. Of course, you know, the devil's always in the details, but these guys are... How do you, the devil's even more in the details when you're dealing with the devil. That's, these guys are the devil. They're pure evil. He's in the details. He's in the non-details. He's in the generalities. He's in the pen's ink. Yeah. He's everywhere. Yeah. Okay. So, obviously, this deal's not going to work. We, we, we know this. The, 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 the naive, naivete at best and the, the willingness to suspend disbelief um, also in the, in the neutral side and the, the actual intention to do harm at worst could I raise is a, all there. Could I raise a very abstract point just for the sake of argument that yeah. may interest you? Mm -hmm. um, what if we are wrong about Obama? What if this is actually a brilliant plan to get the Israelis and Saudis and Egyptians to come to a peace accord amongst themselves united against the Iranian bomb and somehow this will bloom into peace in our time between the Jews and the Sunni Arabs. <sighs> I know that sounds completely nuts, and there's no way Obama would be deliberately pursuing that path. It might happen just no. by accident. No, it, 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 Yes, it, it's true. My, things might happen by accident, but it, it's, there's definitely no deliberation there at all. There's if no, that happened, would you give Obama credit for it, just as a thought experiment? No. No. It's, that's like saying... Uh, I'll choose any scenario that, that's, that's wild to you, okay? Let, let's say um, I, I set fire or I let a fire go because I'm, I haven't, haven't been uh, taking care of the brush in the, the house or whatever else, and, and it's overrun by rats and eventually catches fire. The whole place is burns, burns down, okay? And as a consequence, um, you know, the, the, the neighbors in the, in the street also, you know, suffer some burning. And they end up moving to a different place where they scratch a lottery ticket in that different state, and they win the lottery. I thought it would have been a better analogy. <laughs> right. I mean, wait, wait, wait. wait. Do you, yes, do you, I do. Hold on, hold on. 
you, my, my point is, you see how things can easily, easily, um, you know, look like it was intended. Like, oh, and, and then somehow, oh, it was a good thing that, that, uh, that your house burned down. Right. So, but, but, but for that, yeah. you would never have gotten the lottery. So that was part of the big plan. Yeah, I have a perfect analogy for it. Okay. It's like saying, well, we need to thank Hitler because if it wasn't for the Holocaust, there'd be no Israel. And so, therefore, yeah, somehow that the, that the Holocaust was a good thing. Yeah, I mean, we should celebrate Hitler as a great friend of the Jews. Yeah, it's, it's, no, it, you know, that's a, that's a very good example. Um, it, or that uh, it, it's good that this woman was uh, uh, raped because she then moved out of the town because she, was, um, she didn't want to have any memories of the town. And then she got this fantastic job and she became CEO. And therefore... You know, it was good that she was victimized like she, like she was. Of course, it's absurd, yeah. right? So, you know, that's what it would be like to say, you know, that these, these natural alliances that build um, as a result of a mutual enemy, yes, of, you know, but that's, that's, there's no planning there at all. This is, and that's so, that's so dangerous to think that way. You don't plan these things. And also any peace created that way would be so fragile because once the threat is, is eliminated, what's to hold the peace together afterwards? Right. Of course. It's, it's a, no. So in, to answer your question, there's no way that Obama thinks that way because, first of all, we know that he engages in very shallow thinking. We've, we've talked about this many times. And we've also talked about the fact that uh, liars always lie, simple people are always simple, cheaters always cheat, desperate people are desperate. They tend to act consistently. And we've, we've seen too many examples of Obama uh, exercising very shallow and very short-sighted judgment where he jumps to a conclusion, whether it's the, the Cambridge police situation or the Trayvon Martin situation or the Michael Brown situation or what Israel should be doing vis-a-vis -vis the so-called settlements in Jerusalem uh, or what happened with Honduras. I mean, there, there's too many examples of very misguided actions, uh, that the, the website wasn't up, um, that the shovel-ready jobs were not quite shovel-ready. and So these are just examples of, of how he didn't exercise judgment very well at all. So why, and he had no long-range planning, no long-range thinking, right? So why would he engage in long-range thinking in, in, when it comes to Iran? Of course, on the contrary, they, did the Iranian deal, and here's another question, does it reflect long-term thinking or short-term thinking? And of course it reflects only short-term thinking. He leaves everything, you know, for, for 10 years from now. It, it, there's no imagination of all the possible scenarios that can come out. Um, and this, this is from the same man who gave us Obamacare, the, the, the thing that's unraveling all the time, the, the continuing train wreck that Obamacare is, right? We've talked about that at length also, the slow the slow motion accident that's happening. Yeah, and happening. it's such a perfect correlation to what you talk about, static thinking. Yeah, 10 years from now works out perfectly based on Obama's attitude towards Iran. If every variable stays exactly the same as he says it's going to stay and doesn't fluctuate whatsoever and to any degree whatsoever at all, ever. Right. Perfect. And it, it assumes that the Iranians get together and say, well, we signed this deal. We're, we're bound by it. And I mean, it assumes there's no counterattack by any of the people who are getting screwed by this deal. Right, exactly right. So, so it assumes so many things. I mean, and, and these are also begging questions, okay? So but <laughs> here's, here's, how, here's how I look at it. Imagine the scenario now. What is the Iranian government thinking right now? They're thinking that, okay, do you really think like, well, gosh, we should, you know, 
uh, Ayatollah, we need to consider these factors and that factors. No, they're not thinking about this at all in the in negotiation. They're thinking, how can we fool them? How can we, we'll say this and we'll get that. And they, what we won't include is this so that they, then we can do this and then they, they'll, they'll, they'll claim that we're violating the agreement, but the agreement doesn't say that. So they'll violate the spirit of the agreement, if not the actual agreement itself. I mean, is this not obvious? This is what dictators do. They play these games. They, yeah. they, if they, and, and I've said it on my Sunday show. There is no such thing as a contract that will force anyone to do anything. If somebody wants to breach a contract, they will breach the contract. You, you can't stop them from doing it. Yeah, contracts only stay in force between two willing and uh, good-intentioned participants. That's what it is. And if, he, if somebody doesn't want to buy that, that house that he claimed that he wants to buy, well, he's not going to buy it. And if somebody doesn't want to sell it, he's not going to sell it. Or he, he might be, he'll, he'll say to him, look, you know, uh, there's a breach of an agreement here. And if it's not tightly, if it's not written the, the correct way, you're not going to be able to buy that house. That's just the way it is. Um, now, in law, it's a little different from real estate because there's some extra protection rights for people who buy real property. So maybe not a good example. But let's say a partnership dispute. That's even a better example. Okay, so you have three partners who agree to divvy up the profits of the company three ways. And that's the agreement. Okay, nothing more said. So that's it. We agree one-third each. Okay, well, one of them, maybe two of them, are uh, corrupt. And the third one is not corrupt. Well, the two of them get together and they decide to cheat the third. And um, they, they suddenly, they, you know, he gets instead of the, the $10,000 he expects every month, he gets $10 a month. And he says, hey, what's going on here? Oh, uh, you know, I'm sorry, Johnny, but uh, it looks like there are a lot of expenses this month. And here they are. Hey, wait a minute. I don't remember all these expenses. Oh, yeah, they were here. They were here. And we have to pay this to that. And, and all of a sudden, you know, Johnny has to think about how difficult it's going to be to sue the other two partners, right? So now he doesn't have the money. He can't do it. Or he's not willing to go through it. And he's not a lawyer. He doesn't know. So all of a sudden, he has to walk away from this partnership. Okay? That's the way it works. Contracts work between two people who trust each other to some extent. But, if, but I'll tell you one thing. If I had a client here in this very office, who comes to me and tells me, I want to resolve this dispute I have with somebody, and, I, and he's lied to me over and over again, and he's cheated to me over and over, cheated me over, and over again. He's, in fact, I, I, I caught him stealing money from me. And I say, well, okay, well, you want to re resolve it and make sure that you get your money and he goes his way and you go your way? Uh, not quite, Mr. Lurie. What I'd like to do is I'd like to enter into a whole new deal with him. You know, you know what I'm going to say to him? I'm going to say, are you crazy? You know this guy's a liar. Why do you think he's going to be suddenly very honest and upfront with you in the future? Of course you don't deal with this guy. Yeah, pieces of paper only enforce what's on them yeah, between that's good, all it is. honest people. So here we have with Iran a situation where they've lied to us over and over and over again. And we think that a piece of paper is going to bind them this time? That... that I mean, and, and Obama says consistent, you know, repeatedly during his talks, you know, um, if if we can trust them, if we can, if they're honest, if they're trustworthy, then this will happen. But that, that there begs the question: What have they done to earn our trust? Nothing. They've they've only done things 
to solidify our belief that they're not trustworthy. Every single thing that they have done. But this time, it's going to work. See, this is the foolhardy nature of this administration, the, the, the lack of judgment that we deal with. And this, that's maybe how we'll have to finish it off. Um, we, it's one thing to, to deal with any dictator that you haven't had any relationship with at all, which I still would recommend against. Any dictator, don't negotiate with them. Be like Reagan, as my son says and my daughter says, Reaganize. Don't Obamaize. Reaganize. <laughs> and what does that mean, of course? It means do what Reagan would do. And Reagan would never negotiate with Iran. It would, he would simply squeeze them. He would destroy them from within and then force a revolution to overthrow the mullahs. That's what would happen. You know it. I know it. Obama knows it. But they don't like that approach. But that's what you would do with a the, with the dictator. But this is a dictatorship that not only is a dictatorship, but with whom we've had an, a track record of lies and deceit day in and day out. Not a single thing they have done has worked, has been worthy of our trust. They're like the weatherman that gets the weather wrong every single freaking time. And then you still turn on the channel and say, oh, let's, let's see what John Smith has to say about the weather today. Right? Oh, he's, he says it's going to be sunny today. But you know that, that every, anything that comes out of his mouth is a lie. Yeah, if you had a boyfriend or a woman who beat you, but suddenly he finally gave you flowers and said, I promise I'll change, it, it's like that. There you go. That, that's, a, that's a very good example. I promise they, I'll people, But he said he'd be nice this time. People don't change, and dictatorships don't change. And dictatorships, in a way, are all the same. They're brutal, always. They're power-hungry, always. And they lie, always. All right. When we get back, uh, we'll be talking a little bit more about this, but we're going to be talking about one of my favorite subjects. Don't go away. We'll be right back. It's good to be Ben Shapiro here with a man I have tremendous respect for, my good friend, Attorney Barack Lurie. Barack, you've been practicing law for over 24 years. Do you have some important advice about lawsuits? Well, Ben, the law deals with conflict, right? A good attorney should help ease a lot of your anxieties because he should have perspective and know how to gather his evidence. But his main mission should always be to pursue the path toward quick resolution or settlement. Well, how do you do that? Simply by working to remove the emotion from both sides. Once you gather information and think rationally and compare strengths and weaknesses in a case, you can work on what's fair. The truly great lawyers know how to do that and quickly. You can see, folks, why I so admire Barack Lurie and all the work that he does. For all your business and real estate legal issues, call my friend Barack at 866-575-8111. 866-575-8111. 866-575-8111. Fighting for what's right. Barack Lurie at Lurie & Seltzer. Listen to The Barack Lurie Show, Sundays at 10 a.m. here on AM870, The Answer. All right, so as you know, we like to talk a lot about politics. We talk about, about world events and such. Very important. Uh, however, also we like to stray a little bit and uh, discuss some 
interesting big philosophical issues and this one I think you'll like uh, it's really it's not so much about happiness as it is that we enjoy other people's happiness that that's this is what makes us uh, kind of motivated we talked about this before uh, in a previous podcast but this is going to be a little bit different uh, what we're talking about today the notion is that uh, we want happy happiness for everyone else also. All right, so we like um, so many different issues. We talk a lot about politics. We talk about world events and such. And, but sometimes it's good to talk about other issues uh, that are equally important to us all. But an epiphany I had the other day was about uh, happiness and not necessarily our own happiness, although that's, of course, very important. Uh, to seek that. And I know Dennis Prager talks a lot about that. And of course, it's certainly worthwhile exploring. Uh, and then we had a podcast some time ago that we revel in other people's uh, successes. And that should make us happy as well. So, And why not, right? I mean, there, life is full of some challenges and such. So why not borrow other people's happiness and incorporate into your own, right? So when your uh, best friend uh, wins uh, his division in uh, mountain biking, for example, I have, I have such a friend, uh, and you know I'm just thrilled. It makes my day. I'm happy for him, but I'm also happy as if, as if I, not necessarily that I, that I had done it, but it makes me happy. It gives me an extra skip in my step. I, I like it when other people succeed. Now, we've, we've had a podcast about that before and how valuable that is, we talked about. Um, and, and I recommend it to everyone. Why not? Why, do, why, did it, why does it have to be only your success that makes you happy? If somebody else succeeds in your family or your close friends, by all means, be happy about it. There's nothing wrong with it. In fact, it can only uh, bring great joy to you as well. And then it, it'll bring you even greater joy because you'll know and you'll presume correctly that other people are also thrilled for you when you succeed. So you know that it's not just you that, that is celebrating, but other people are celebrating. Um, so that's nice, right? So, but here's what I want us to talk about a little bit more today. It's a little different. It's how we should want happiness for everyone. It's an epiphany I had the other day. I, I had some conflict with, with a gentleman um, on the business side of things. And... He was, uh, let's, let's just say he was not a very nice person. The, the way he comported himself was, a, was unfortunate and very nasty. Um, the words he chose could have been much better. And, um, you know, when you, when, you, when you bumped into him in the circles that we're in, uh, he would give this very nasty look. He would make snide comments and such. And I thought to myself, what do I want for this man? Do I want to see him slip and fall and hurt himself? What, what, what if that happened, for example? Would, I, would it bring me joy to see that, that he would fall and hurt himself? No. What do I want for him? I want him to be more happy. I want him to succeed in other things in his life. He wasn't happy with the relationship that we had. I'm not even talking about a legal perspective. I'm simply saying there was a business deal that we had and he was quite nasty about it. And, but what I want for him, I want him to be happy. Because the way he's talking to me, the way he's dealing with me, reflects somebody who's not a happy person. 
Happy people don't deal like that when they have confrontation, when they have a difficult challenge that they're facing. They just don't deal like that. So I want him to be happy. There's no skin off of my back, right? If he's happy, it can only help me in a sense, right? If he's a happy person, he's going to put his conflict with me in context and maybe treat things, treat me a little bit nicer, treat my family a little bit nicer in the process as well. It can only help everyone involved. So when you're dealing with somebody in that sort of conflict, wish him well, wish him very well, because the more angry he gets, the more misfortune he faces, the more elevated his anger and his, and his unhappiness is going to be toward you. Important, right? Um, I, I'll, th- I'll think of an analogy about this soon enough, but you know, they, they come to me pretty quickly. So uh, think of it like, I don't know, you've got a rodent problem. And you know, the, what you want to do, first of all, is stem the flow of the rodents. Okay, you, you don't want to increase the stem of the, of the rodents. And so if, if your neighbor, let's say you're having a conflict with your neighbor. By the way, this person is not my neighbor. But if you had such a conflict with a neighbor and you see that they're really suffering with all their problems, uh, and then he's got a rodent problem to boot, and, uh, and you, you might kind of, you know, wring your hands and enjoy because he's got all these problems. Well, guess what? The rodent problem might come your way, right? He's right next door to you. It's, it's an issue, right? No, no more than you would want his house to, to catch fire because it might be the same. It might affect you as well. And even if it's many blocks away, even miles away, um, it's suffering that eventually, you know, attaches to everyone. Suffering and, and unhappiness has a way of being contagious. Not, not a good thing, right? Conversely, happiness and uh, perseverance is also contagious. In this sense, I think they're both equal. Uh, good and evil don't manifest themselves in the same way, but happiness and unhappiness, they're equally contagious. And it's up to you to encourage that. And we want happiness for everyone. Uh, that's, that's what I want. I mean, Ari, if you feel differently, you let me know. Do, tell me, there, there's a German expression called Schade uh, Freude, which means shameful joy in the sense that, you know, you see somebody suffering, somebody that uh, you would like to, uh, to see hurt because he hurt you, and then he, let's say, has to file for bankruptcy or his house is foreclosed or, uh, God forbid, he, he gets cancer. Some people enjoy that. Uh, I remember when um, Ronald Reagan announced that uh, he had the beginnings of Alzheimer's disease. I, I know a few people who seem to be quite happy about that. Do you have a sense, you know, when somebody that, that doesn't, that you don't like very much, who you feel has rubbed you the wrong way, and he has uh, suffered a, a blow in his life, does that give you joy? If they're evil. No, I, and I'm not talking about, uh, th- thank, you know what, thank you for that's bringing That's why I that. thought that's an important distinction. Yeah. Oh, yeah, no, if... if I'm not, t- I'm not talking about somebody who's e- truly evil. I'm talking about somebody. I-, I wish them all sorts of pain and suffering. I watch them all sorts of cancers and heart attacks and strokes and the most painful internal bleeding possible. Uh, I want the, the, the head of ISIS and, for that, for, for that matter, all ISIS soldiers uh, to suffer all the, the horrible fate, fate that they can. I want them to suffer as much as possible. But I'm talking about 
uh, not the Hitlers and the Stalins of the world. I'm talking about, about people in your own life. In your own life. You know, people that just you kind of intermingle with. and uh, Not at all. Never. Yeah. Uh, a, a big revelation for me was a, a couple of years I, I learned this profound lesson about business. That nothing happens in business without people making a decision. Yeah. And what, what opened my eyes about this is that before then I had a very ignorant, idiotic view of business. Which was, magically, success would just bite me like a snake I stepped on in, in tall grass. Right. I didn't realize that it was people's decisions to turn their trust over to me, to hire me. Uh, and, that, and that the more people who do this, the more successful you are. And when you see people who are successful beyond measure, it's clearly a reflection that many, many people decided to trust them and hire them for something. Yeah, yeah. Thus... It That's takes right. many, many, many prosperous people to make you prosperous. Wow. You mean other people being successful make me successful? Right. Suddenly, my entire view of the world changed, and I want everyone successful. Right. It's an amazing thing. It's an, when, amazing, when, when, you th- right? when you think about it, um, you know, a, a smart businessman understands that he only succeeds when you succeed. Uh, for example, I, I advertise on uh, KRLA, right? And I've, I've advertised in other radio stations, too. I won't mention them right now. Um, and and the, the head of KRLA said to me very wisely, he said, we only succeed if you succeed. So if you're telling us, Mr. Lurie, that you're not seeing more calls as a result of your ads, then we're doing something wrong, and it concerns us. You're, we only succeed if you succeed. So because we know that you'll leave us if, if it's not generating the, the calls and the leads and the good clients that you want. And I say, yeah, that's right, I would. I mean, why would I continue to pay the amount of money that I'm paying you for those ads uh, only to learn later on that there's, you know, it's going into, the, into nothingness? So, I, you know, my success is very, very important for their success. And it's true all the way around, right? When, I mean, think of it like, uh, I mean, you could think of it like, I don't know, like, like pigeons uh, seeing somebody giving away bread, right? All of a sudden, there's a lot of pigeons available to you. But maybe that's not a good analogy. You have, uh, if somebody's really succeeding, let's say, in real estate, okay? Uh, they've managed to acquire many different properties. And they've got a lot of tenants now. Well, guess what? There's going to be a lot of people that... Uh, will come up to this particular mogul, this real estate mogul, and they're going to be offering his services services to him. Why? Because he's succeeding. His success is good for their success. They want him to succeed because now they can do business with him. He may need, in, in turn, to, uh, to advertise, for example, for uh, tenant space. He may need uh, plumbing services. He may need electrical services. He may need... Uh, Legal services, for that matter, right? Accounting services, corporate services. Um, all that would not would, would kind of go away. All those jobs associated with that would go away. And so it is. Success depends on other people's success. And that's, frankly, it's part of our capitalist system. It, it, it all works that way. And since financial success and prosperity is the way we compete and survive in the civilization we've built here, financial success and prosperity is tied hand in hand with happiness. Not that money will make you happy, 
but the lack of it can c- severely contribute to your lack of happiness. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's definitely true. Um, so when you talk about do you want someone to not be happy is a different question in the schadenfreude conversation yeah. of do you want them not to be prosperous? Right. Uh, so in, in our conversation here, I think we both agree we want them to be both. Right. I also want to make the quick point. You were talking about how this isn't really analogous to good and evil, but in a way it is. When, when you have someone who's miserable... It's almost like they've lost their immunity, their force field against evil. Yeah. And evil ideas, evil plans, evil actions can in, inhabit them or possess them and cause them in their spread of misery to others by sharing their, the misery that they have themselves oh, yeah. can be acts of evil that then cause acts of retribution or revenge in the victims of that evil. Right. Well, that's, so, that's, that's how we talked about before, but evil be, being uh, contagious... And happiness being contagious and unhappiness being be contagious as well. Yeah. Dangerous stuff. But I want just to finish the thought, which is yeah. you and I have talked on our both of our podcasts so often about how our highest value in life is the defeat of evil yes. and the confrontation of evil. And as people who so hate evil, we are also so... Uh, Enthusiastic, enthusiastic about spreading happiness and prosperity as the greatest balm and the greatest uh, defense against evil. Yes. Let me give you an example that is, I think is picture perfect as not just a metaphor, but a, as, a, as, a, as a microcosm of our point. We all know that in real estate, the way that you value your house, the, the value of your house, what, your, what is your house worth? One of the primary ways is comps, right? Comparables, meaning what other sales are occurring near your house uh, based upon other homes that are similar in, in size and, and similar size of number of bedrooms and so on like that, right? What happens when there's a foreclosure? Everyone loses That's right. on the block. Right. So when you see a foreclosure two blocks away and you're trying to sell your house or you're thinking about selling your house a half a year from now, let's say, you say, oh, frig, right? Only you don't say frig. <laughs> That's right. right. You might say, I might say, I'll say the, the actual word in my head loudly. But the point, the point is, is that you say, oh, frig, this is going to affect my house too. And you're absolutely right. It will. It'll affect it very substantially. Because, and, and that's why we, the last thing we want is, is a foreclosure anywhere near us or any short sale for that matter, because it's going to dampen the values dramatically for everyone else. His failure affects you, the guy who's being foreclosed upon. By contrast, if somehow we can find a way out of it, and he, and he in turn sells it to somebody else for a good price, his success is your success. We're all in this together. We all live in a world where um, if, if everyone is truly failing, you're going to end up failing too, okay? And if everyone is truly succeeding, there is great opportunities for you to succeed. That's the way it works. If everyone is succeeding in America the way you and I, Barack, want them to succeed, want and believe they can succeed, it would take work not to succeed. That's right. You'd have to make an effort not to participate. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's absolutely true. You know, when, when let, let's give examples. Um, and this, this is in the way of, and I don't want to get too political here because I did say it would be not political, but we'll get there eventually, I suppose. And let's say you impose so many regulations um, on opening up a restaurant, okay? Well, 
you impose that and then all of a sudden um, very few restaurants open up and therefore very few waiters who and those are entry level level jobs right bus boys and all those things so suddenly there's a whole dearth of of uh, jobs that are not available to the community that's it's too bad right by contrast you you open up the market a lot more and encourage restaurants to come into the restaurant uh, into the into the vicinity uh, suddenly you have a flurry of activity um, everyone's success there in the restaurant is it, it just breeds all sorts of jobs busboys waiters customers are coming by um, and, and they in turn then go to the next stores nearby in order to buy the flowers for their mom's uh, birthday or whatever whatever it is uh, it's all part and parcel they're all complementary services in, in, our economy in, in, in essence is complementary we we look at the success of other people and we try to say how can we help you succeed that's what it's all about when you think about it um, almost every service that somebody offers you the way that they try to get you to part with your money as it were is to say look this is going to be good for you right would you like to advertise in the uh, in the yellow pages uh, online forget whether or not it works or not for a second uh, this will give you exposure to this many people um, would you like uh, Mr. Lurie, for example, to somebody to help you with your website? I, I think we can maximize more views on your website and therefore get more clients. Oh, okay, yeah, I'm, that's interesting. Tell me more. Uh, would you like uh, uh, a cheaper deal on the paper that you use, Mr. Lurie? Because I know you're a lawyer and you, yeah. you sure need paper. And, um, and I can get you this uh, a much lower and I save you a lot of money. And um, would you like some better leads as to other lawyers that might work for you? Because uh, we got some really great uh, headhunters out here, and they they know who's who. Uh, you get the idea. People people glom onto you when you're successful, and they want to encourage you to be successful. Yeah, and forget all those service businesses because you're being too humble. Yeah. That supply services to your business. You tell the customer base out there. Do you, I'll quote your commercials. Do you have a business or real estate dispute? Right. I can help you with them. Yep. I have experiences. That's right. I will save you or make you money by you hiring me. That's right. That's at a right. reasonable rate for the experience that you're getting. Right. You're not you're not telling the customers, <laughs> hire me, Barack Lurie will rip you off. I'll shake you down for every penny. But no, the opposite. Yeah, exactly. the opposite is I will help you complete the deal that you need to complete. I will protect you with the contracts you need completed. Right. It's interesting. I just, just today I had told a prospective client just today saying, look, I, I want to be your hero. And to me, being a hero means getting, in this case, he, it was a prospective uh, defendant that I would be defending him in the case. For me, being a hero is getting him out of that case for as little money as possible and paying me as little money as possible because I know that they'll sing our praises so much that we'll get a flurry of activity. And that's, that's the way we get a lot of our cases, precisely that way. But I, I really don't want to talk about my firm necessarily. I just want to talk about the global yeah, but thing. The, in the I appreciate in the what you're saying. In the global scheme of things, yeah. so often those on a different political persuasion than us, not to get political, have yeah. an attitude towards business that a business wants to sell people a toaster so that the toaster can burn down their house. Yes, yes, you're Not right. so the toaster right. can make toast in right, perpetuity. Right. right. They, yeah. They, they see us... Let's put it this way. Um, we view business as a means of helping people. They view business as a means uh, where we're exploiting people. But that, that's pretty much a fair sum 
of, of the difference, yes. right? Okay. Yes. So, and, and it's a shame because it shouldn't be that way. Yeah, and, we're, uh, and, and, and that's yeah. why so many of them feel, and I, I'm positive about this now, I think we've hit, really hit something here. That's why so many of them feel that the only legitimate career to pursue after college, for example, is something in the nonprofit world where they go to Greenpeace or to um, uh, some sort of uh, similar. PETA, Greenpeace. Yes, yeah, Greenpeace. Yeah. Uh, Surfrider Foundation or pursues uh, careers in government. Right. Well, that's exactly that. They only see that as the legitimate and, and good thing to do. And it's not everyone, of course, we're talking about because naturally, you know, it, they, they see some of the more obvious stuff like, I don't know, making a, um, like making a movie. And, and, and by making a movie, you can make a movie that's about an important topic like uh, saving uh, Africa from all the, the, the starvation that they're suffering. And so that's the only way to look at it. But making a sellout movie like Furious 7 or, or something like, like that, well, then by golly, that's not really uh, the right thing to do. And then, of course, they expect you, uh, in order to, um, to justify making so many millions, that you should uh, pay your appropriate uh, sacrifice and uh, you know, give as much money as you can to uh, the Greenpeace movement or the Global Warming Initiative and so on. Okay, you get the idea. What, uh, indulgences is what they called them, right, in the old days. Um, this, is the, this is the way that they kind of look at it, at, at these things. Uh, not all of them, of course, but th so much of what informs the way liberalism looks at business is just like that. Now, anyway, let's not go too far astray, but I do want to come back to that point. Happiness is something that we should all strive for in other people. We should want them to be happy. Um, and, and here's a, another microcosm. We talked before the, about the foreclosure thing, right? It's, I'm, I'm not, I shouldn't even be appealing to somebody's selfish nature because I, it is, in fact, good when other people are happy. We, we, we kind of proved that a little bit with the foreclosure example. If they're not foreclosed upon, then your house value maintains uh, at, at a relatively high level, and that's good. If they do foreclose, it hurts you. But that's only assuming that you want other people's happiness because it's good for you. It shouldn't be that way. It should be that we're all there in this together because we, happiness is something that God wants of us. It's an obligation on our part, not because we're not doing this as some sort of Mexican standoff, right, where the, all the, the guns are pointing to each other and you better, better not shoot because I'll shoot you at the same time. And No, it's, it's not, it should not be that way. It's all about obligation. You have an obligation not only to be happy, but to want happiness for other people. Okay? That's, that's your number one way of looking at things. Now, here's a, here's a great uh, thing that, that I accomplished once. I, 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 knew, I know about this, and I, somebody else said the same thing about an experience that he had. Ari, you and I have a habit. I've noticed this about you, uh, but I, I can say this about myself. I like to say hello to people. How are you? Perfect strangers. I'll, uh, I'll be in an elevator, and uh, I don't, it's, I'm not even talking about engaging in a lengthy conversation. I'll just say, hi, how are you? How was your weekend? Good, good. Okay, great. And that's about it. You know, maybe a little bit more chit-chat than that sometimes, depending on the person. Um, and you know, you never know who you're talking to, these strangers. But a lot of them are, are contemplating, some of them are contemplating suicide. They're so depressed. They're just wandering about like mindless zombies in their lives right now, thinking about how they're going to kill themselves. 
And your simple act of saying, hi, how are you? How's your day going? It wakes them up, snaps them out. And it makes them feel like, as if somebody else gives a crap about them. And, and you do. That's the funny thing about it. It's not just, hi, how are you? And, and, and forget about it. It's about communicating. It's about that connection that you're making with another human being. Because we all strive for that. Our connection to other people is essential to our very human existence. We, we humans crave connection. We are social animals, more so than any other animal that you can think about there. I hate it when you bring up a subject or tangentially run into subject, a subject like this that is so important Almost the it, it, almost everything in the world is based on it, even though it seems so simple. It's almost stupid. Right. What you're talking about is setting people at ease, and it's the core of leadership, and it's the core problem. Not to get political, but I guess I am. That we're running into in our own society today, as masculinity and the leadership qualities of being a strong male are slowly eroded. Yeah. Because that's, that's what strong male leaders have consistently done throughout history, putting people at ease. Right. And you know what? I've always had the attitude because um, you know you said something interesting. You said you never know who you're talking to. I've always said to myself, because growing up in this part of Los Angeles, you run to all sorts of people, movie stars to busboys. I said to myself years ago, yeah, you know what? You do know who you're always talking to. You're always talking to the most important person in the room. Because the person, like you're saying, you don't know what they're going through. You don't know if you're saving their life just by saying hi or making them laugh for a moment. Right. Exactly right. You just don't know. And uh, everyone is made in God's image. We, we know that. I mean, we, we can actually prove that, but that's another story. If you recognize that, um, then that person is worthy of a hello, how are you? Because by golly, that person... Is made in God's image. This is, this is a product of God. I mean, it, it's worthy of your respect. Just to say hello. And it's interesting. We can, we have, we have a whole podcast about this, about respect and such. And, and why so many of the crazy um, gang members out there, you know, one of the number one reasons why they kill each other is... Because they've been disrespected, mink. That's exactly right. And, and I didn't have to cue Ari on this. He understood right away. It's about disrespecting. Now, it's a crazy thing, a crazy way to respond. I'm not, I'm not applauding it or supporting it in any way, but I, I'm trying to explain it. And they, they call it out. They say that they're disrespecting me. Or dissing. Dissing, yeah, that's the, that's the, shortened. the, that's the shortened version. So they're disrespecting, and, and it means that, hey, you're not acknowledging my existence in God's image, and therefore uh, I'm going to do terrible things to you. I mean, it's, it's a, they shouldn't be doing that, of course. It's, it goes without saying. But it's, it's valuable to understand why they're doing it. That's all. And it it's an extreme thing, but it's, it's valuable. Yeah, and you and I have talked about parenting before. And one thing I learned about you is the idea that children need to be shown respect. Right. It doesn't matter if we're That's bigger right. than them. We have to show them respect so they learn to, first of all, respect themselves and not take crap from people bigger than them who are called bullies later in life. Right. And number two, so they understand based on role modeling how to treat others with respect right. when they're the big kid or That's the right. big person. Yep. And this has nothing to do, by the yeah. way, with self-esteem. This has, because I, I don't even believe in the self-esteem movement. You can still respect a child um, as a child, but 
make sure that he acknowledges that he he doesn't deserve to be treated like he's uh, the, the the center of the universe merely for his his existence. Yeah, that's a different set that's of a different issues. Set. But the point is, these gang members are so desperate for respect from each other that they will murder each other for being disrespected. There you go. So that's that's the point. So look, um, when we connect with everybody else. And, and talking about the suicide situation, somebody who's on suicide watch, as it were, he, they've got a, an issue. And that issue is that they're not connecting very well with their fellow human being. You've got to be able to connect. And, and by simply reaching out there and saying, hey, how are you? You had a good, good weekend? Great, good to hear about it. Do anything special? You know how powerful that is to somebody considering suicide? How many people have said, that they were contemplating suicide, and somebody just said a simple, how are you? And it changed. Right, because we as human beings are not, we're not uh, solitary creatures. That's loneliness right. is lethal to us. It's very, very, and just very just breaking through someone's loneliness can be enough to save their life. Almost every person who has committed suicide, uh, barring some sort of horrible, you know, a shameful thing that they've done, that they don't want to exist anymore, it's usually a function of loneliness. There's some loneliness involved in their lives to a greater degree or a lesser degree, but it's definitely there. Uh, all those kids on Facebook who are bullied on Facebook, they feel all alone. Uh, there's, no, there's nothing in the world for them, and there's nobody that they've connected to. And so they, tragically, they kill themselves. Okay, so this is... I, I've actually helped somebody in this department, and I'm very proud of it, and they told me like years later about this. Now, whether they were just blowing smoke up you-know-what uh, or not, I don't know. But they, they felt compelled to tell me. You said this to me. You reached out to me. And you don't have to be like some sort of fantastic uh, uh, psych counselor uh, that, that you know, deals with a hotline, a suicide hotline. Not at all. You just have to say hello. Can I help you today? How are you? That's it. And you're done. And these little things... So I just say, ever since then, I just say, hello, how are you, to everyone. I, it was already in my, my nature anyway, but I just do it all the time. And you don't have to be one of these overly gregarious people. You don't have to be an extrovert by any stretch. You just have to say, hi, nod your head, hey, how you doing? Not acknowledge somebody's existence. That's all. Okay, so happiness breeds happiness. We want everyone to be happy. When they're happy... You're acknowledging God's existence. Sorry, when, when, you, when you express an acknowledgement to them, you're, you're acknowledging their existence. It's your obligation to be happy, not only for yourself, but to want everyone else to be happy. How about that? And it's guaranteed to help you at the end of the day, but it shouldn't matter whether it helps you. You should do it anyway. In other words, if, you're, if you constantly say, hi, how are you, hi, how are you, to everyone, and you do constantly, and you don't feel like you're getting anything back, should you stop? The answer, no. Keep doing it. You don't realize it, but it's helping you. And you're not doing it to get something back. You're you doing it for other people. That's, that's exactly what I'm saying. So do, it's the right thing to do. It's what God wants you to do. That's all. That's why. Now, let, you know, I said that we, we would talk, take it back into the realm of politics a little bit. So oh, thank God. To, to, some, yeah, to some extent, uh, we were a little bit uh, cheeky with you when we said that this is not going to be political. No, we're just lying. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're not lying. Uh, all right. Whom do you think, between liberals and conservatives, embrace this worldview more than the other? 
do conservatives seek happiness in other people? Or do liberals seek happiness in other people? Or is it exactly the same? You know, maybe, maybe it should not be political whatsoever. What do you think? And when you think about it, you'll understand that the question of, is, is truly rhetorical. It should be obvious to everyone. And, and, and this should be obvious to you as a liberal. Yes, I know if you're a liberal that you have your friends and that you yourself are a very nice person and you yourself wish the best of everyone and wish them success. I get that. But we're not talking about anecdotes here. We're talking about the general proposition of liberalism. What does it want out of people? See, the, the, the problem is that liberalism doesn't just want something out of other people. It demands things out of other people. It, it does not even think of the realm of happiness for other people. I mean, when, when do you ever hear um, a, a, a true lefty talk about happiness and how we should all be engaged in seeking the happiness of other people? When, right? No, you, you only hear them talking about the rights of other people and how these guys who have more money should give that, their money to that person, it, right? We only talk about punishing other people. Yes. When it comes to punishing, conservatives only talk about punishing either criminals or evil. Yep. That's it. That's we're, it. We're not the punitive ones. They're the ones who talk about putting the boots on the necks of their political enemies, making people get a haircut, pay their fair share, right. clean up their act, right. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Conservatives are the ones asking, essentially, how can we help you? This is our mantra, and it's, it's both from a religious point of view, a spiritual point of view, if you want, uh, and also from an economic point of view. If we can help you, it'll be great for everyone involved. We, we, this is the way capitalism works. We already kind of described it, right? Your, happy, your success is our success, right? We, we, we said that. But you see how this feeds into the whole conservative mindset altogether. I mean, when, when the Bush uh, team decided to go invade Iraq to engage in regime change, do you think that they did it because they wanted to punish Saddam Hussein? No. They could have done that with a couple of snipers who were w w very well placed. No, they, they actually sought regime change in Iraq because they wanted the people to be democratic. We know that a democratic regime is a more happy regime. And don't tell me... Not a happy regime. A regime with happier citizens. That's right. That's right. It is happier citizens. It's the only way... Good for today. That, that's the only way we can think of today that can lead to true happiness. You cannot have true happiness in a despotic regime. It just can't happen. Okay? You may have a few people here and there who are happy because they've, they've kind of... Um, Worked their the, way to the top. Worked their way to the top and ha have it in with a dictator. But I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about real happiness in a, in a, from a social point of view where things really operate in a way that we maximize everyone's individual happiness. Of course. And that's the way it is. The difference is such a classic difference. Ask yourself the question, if you are a liberal, be honest with yourself and say, the conservatives that I know, they are always asking, how can I help you? What, what, what would be the best approach to get us from point A to point B? How can we do this together? And the liberal, unfortunately, is always talking about how somebody's screwing him over. They're the ones the more likely, when going back to my example of, of the acquaintance that I have who, who is, is acting in a very mean and, and uh, inappropriate way, they're the ones who wish him to fail. They're the ones who wish him to get in a nasty accident.
not us. And also politically, just from a pure political science perspective, the conservative political parties and candidates do not benefit electorally when people are miserable. On the other hand, yeah. liberal yes. candidates, policies, and ideas are only attractive when people are miserable. That's exactly right. Well, you know, somebody on the liberal side, they'll say it to you, well, what are you talking about, you know, uh, uh, R.A. and Barack? You know, if, if, uh, if Obama is failing terribly and the recession continues on as it, as it has been, you guys love that so that you can win. And the response to that, of course, is, well, that's kind of our point, is that liberals only deliver poor economic conditions and only deliver an, a notion of failure and uh, entitlement and a sense of, of rights, whereas um, conservatives want only to embrace and, and improve the economy by way of working with the little guy, with the, the masses, and to ensure their happiness as, as best as they can. That's, that, there's a big difference between the two. But, but the only way that liberals will win is by telling the population out there that they're being screwed. That's different. Yeah, and very different. And also, that's that's different than the question that Ronald Reagan asked, which is, "Are you better off today than you were four years ago?" Right? That's very different. Yeah, because the liberal can't ask that question. What the liberal will say is, "You know, white camp is doing well. Uh, you know, white you know wasps basically, and uh, Jews, blacks, and Hispanics uh, are doing doing poorly somehow, or Koreans, whatever it is. That's the way they'll do it, and they'll any time that somebody." is successful as a, as a demographic group, that's a threat. That in, in and of itself is a threat to the liberal camp, and they can't have that. Example, uh, women. If, if, a, if a woman is married, then that's a big threat to the democratic vote. Women, married women do not vote liberal. Uh, there are, of course, exceptions, but the vast majority of married women vote Republican, and there's a reason for that. We don't have to get into that. So marriage is a threat, which marriage is what you and I see as a very healthy institution. It's a threat to the liberals. And think about this. Marriage counters loneliness. Marriage gives a family. Marriage ensures happiness and prosperity. Right. All those things are a threat. And also, while our side says, are you better off now than you were when you first Before, elected yeah. us, the liberal will always say, it doesn't matter whether you're better off now or later. Our intentions are good. We can't stop making progress now. Right. But so, they never define what the progress is. Yeah. It's, it's all emptiness. Look, all right. So we'll wrap this up by saying, look, focus on happiness of others, that, that it's your obligation to ensure happiness of others. It, it's spiritually the right thing to do. It's religiously the right thing to do. It's what God wants of you, if you think about it, because he wants us all to treat each other really well, right? So saying, hi, how are you? means you're treating somebody well. We're treating them with respect. It's not about you getting goodies in return. God does, there's nowhere in the Bible does it say that, and nowhere does logic dictate that. Because if that's the case, then no one ever starts dancing, as it were. We're all wallflowers in the end. Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast, and we'll talk with you real soon.